dead. I'm Michael Hudson. I'm a professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and Peking University. My focus is on uh, the distinction between the financial economy and uh, the real economy at large. I treat the financial sector and debt as an economic overhead, and my focus is on how society can deal with the debt and to explain why society cannot recover from the current depression until it uh, writes down the debts to what can be paid. So here's the situation. So, uh, by 2008, uh, and it remains the case today, debt in almost every country is equal to the entire GDP, the entire national income. Now, if uh, debt is equal and the interest rate on debt that the people have to pay is 4%, this means that if economies only grow at 1 or 2%, if they're growing today, all of the economic growth has to be to pay the financial sector. On what, interest payments? On interest alone not mentioning the repayments of principal uh, to pay down the debt. So uh, this is uh, the phenomenon of debt deflation that uh, was discussed already in the 1930s. Uh, it's a, it's a, a phenomenon and it's inherent in the very mathematics of compound interest. In fact, this should be the focus of the economic curriculum. What? If you're teaching economics, you should begin with the relationship between finance and the economy, between the buildup of debt and the ability to pay. That should be the starting point if you realize that the problem of our time is how can society cope with the debt buildup that has occurred and is keeping the economy from recovering. We're in a permanent uh, debt deflation, to make it very brief. People think uh, uh, in terms of business cycles as if uh, whenever things go down they automatically recover, but every business recovery since World War II has taken place with a higher level of debt, higher and higher and higher. And finally, by 2008, uh, the volume of debt was so high that it was absorbing all of the economic growth, and uh, at that point, the stock markets plunged, uh, especially when it became apparent that the business plan of the large banks was economic fraud, junk mortgages. Uh, people say, uh, when Queen Elizabeth asked, why didn't anybody foresee it? The fact is, everybody foresaw that there was a crash. That's why they used the word junk mortgage. That's why they coined the term ninja, no income, no job, no assets. So all of the terminology uh, was widely used. The FBI in 2004 explained that there was the largest wave of financial bank fraud in history and so people uh, had to pay so much money to pay off the debts that uh, had been built up during the uh, bubble economy that they didn't have enough money to buy goods and services. And the result was that in 2008, uh, the banks were saved, not the economy. When you say that the debt has built up since World War II, uh, you know, um, year on year, what you're, is what you're saying that when, you can, when the real economy can no longer service that debt, that is when we have a financial crisis. That's when you have a crisis. And, and it, so it isn't a black swan as such. It, it it's, is actually... It's inevitable. It, it's, uh, the magic of compound interest, uh, I mean, just that interest rates grow uh, and accumulate, uh, plus new money creation, uh, grow faster than the economy grows. The people called the bubble economy the great moderation. And it was the great moderation because somehow uh, the banks were able to lend homeowners and companies and governments enough money to pay the interest. 
there's an idea uh, in uh, sort of superficial textbooks in the public media that if companies make a large profit, that somehow they make it by being productive. Uh, and Which if, is still in, in textbooks, isn't it? Yes. And also that if a stock price goes up, you're just capitalizing the profits and the stock price reflects the productive role of the company. But that's not what's been happening in the last 10 years. Uh, just in the last two years, 92% of corporate profits in America have been spent either on buying back their own stock or in uh, paying out as dividends to raise the price of and the stock. And explain why they do this. Corporate managers find there are two ways that they can uh, increase the price of the stock. Uh, the first thing is to cut back long-term investment and use the money instead to buy their uh, own stock. Just And when you buy your own stock, that means you're not putting the money into capital formation. You're not building new factories. You're not hiring more labor. You can actually increase the stock price by Tempor hiring temporarily. labor. Temporarily. By using the income from the past just to buy the stock, fire the labor force if you can, not, uh, work it more intensively, uh, pay it out as dividends, and that basically is the uh, corporate raiders model. Uh, you use the money to pay off the, uh, the junk bond holders at high interest. Uh, and of course, this gets the company in such trouble after a while, because there's no new investment, markets shrink, that you then go to the labor unions and say, gee, uh, the, this company is really near bankruptcy, uh, and we don't really want to have to fire you. And the way that you can keep your job is if we just uh, uh, downgrade your pensions, and instead of giving you what we promised, uh, the defined benefit pensions, it's a defined contribution. Uh, you know what you pay every month, but you don't know what's going to come out at all. And so you wipe out the pension funds, push it on to uh, the government, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, and uh, all of a sudden you use the money you were going to pay for pensions to pay the stock dividends and then uh, push it up. And then the whole thing turns down and uh, it's hollowed out and you shrink and you collapse, but by that time, the managers will have left the company. Right. They will have taken uh, their bonuses and uh, salaries and run. We talk about an innovation economy as if that makes money. Let's uh, Suppose you have an innovation and a company goes public. Uh, they go to Goldman Sachs and other companies, uh, Wall Street investment banks, to underwrite the stock. What and, uh, they uh, say, uh, we're going to issue the stock, say, at $40 a share. What's considered a successful float is immediately uh, the uh, Goldman and the others will go to their insiders and they'll say, you know, will you buy this stock? You'll guarantee it'll go up. A successful flotation doubles the price in one day. So that at the end of the day, the stock's selling but they, for $80. But they have the option to buy it before everyone else. Yes. And, and knowing that by the end of the day, it'll be inflated and then they sell it off. That's exactly and right. And so the pension funds come in and buy it at an inflated price That's and right. then it goes back down. Uh, the important thing is that the Wall Street underwriting firm and the, uh, the uh, speculators that come in that it rounds up get more in a single day than all the years it took to put the company together. Right. The, 40, uh, the company gets 40%. These people get also $40. Other people get $40. So uh, ba basically, uh, you, you have the financial sector ending up with uh, much more of the gains. What you have... Uh, uh, in the last uh, 50 years, really since World War II, has been asset price inflation. A house is worth whatever a bank is going to lend against it. And if banks have uh, made easier and uh, easier credit, lower uh, down payments, then you're going to have a financial bubble. I think you had written an article in Harper's Magazine before 2008 saying this is, we're all going to have a, uh, it's going to be a big car wreck. And, and um, since we're playing the game again, 
what's going to happen and are they going to be able to go back and loot the U.S. Treasury the way they did before? Well, the, what's ahead, first of all, is that the economy hasn't recovered from 2008. People talk about uh, that there's been a recovery, but the recovery has only been for the 1%. Right, right. And the 99% know they haven't recovered. That's why they're voting for Trump, and that's right. why they're voting for Sanders. They, they know that it... Uh, but they're blaming themselves. There's a tendency of victims to blame themselves. Uh, and the other part well, of that... Well, but let's be clear. The media does, doesn't explain the, re, the economic reality at all. They're always talking about the recovery and... That's the point. And so the result of the media telling people that is the Stockholm Syndrome, where the victim, the kidnapped victim, identifies with the victimizer, with right. the kidnapper, thinking if only we can give more money to Wall Street, Wall Street will save us. Uh, and uh, so if the Federal Reserve can only pump more money into the economy. Well, uh, they talk about the Federal Reserve creating money with a helicopter. But the Federal Reserve's helicopter only drops money over Wall Street. It doesn't drop money over the economy. People don't get the money. It doesn't say we're going to add uh, $200 to everybody's uh, checking account so they can have more money and pay their debts. It's only lending money to Wall Street. And what does Wall Street do? Uh, Wall Street lends out money. So the solution to the debt problem that we're in, debt deflation, is to lend even more money. That's what makes it a Ponzi scheme. The savings rate in 2008 was zero. Uh, actually, it was negative 2% when you take into account uh, borrowing from foreigners. And so the, the whole economy was uh, essentially uh, the consumers were maintaining their living standards by running up their credit card debt and by running into debt and by taking out uh, what Alan Greenspan called cashing out uh, on uh, your house's rising value by taking out a mortgage. But that's not cash. That's taking on more debt. And right. so you had an inside-out vocabulary uh, that America was going into debt thinking it would get rich, and all of a sudden it finds it's in a, uh, a state of what you said, debt peonage, where uh, the wage workers and uh, others have to pay any increase in wages they get. Because you're spending all debt. of your income to service the interest that's rather right. than paying off the principal. And, yeah. and that's why wages have been suppressed since the 70s. That's because the, 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 you know, the speculative class on Wall Street does not want people to be able to pay off their debt. This was the one thing that Alan Greenspan contributed to uh, economic theory, the traumatized worker syndrome. Yeah. And he said the reason that uh, you've had this huge productivity gain without any wages is workers are afraid to go on strike or even to complain about working conditions because they're one paycheck away from homelessness. Right, which is true. And if they miss a credit card payment, all of a sudden uh, their uh, credit card fee goes escalates to uh, 29%. Or even if they're late in a utility bill, right. the bank will raise uh, the fee. So what, what does this mean? I mean, what's going to happen? It means a slow crash. It means what was... We've, which we've already begun, haven't we? Yes, we're in a slow crash now. And all of this was analyzed already in the 1930s uh, when it was called debt deflation by Irving Fisher. And I want to look at the self-identified liberal class within the Democratic Party, including Barack Obama, uh, who often use the language of economic justice and will even chastise Wall Street rhetorically, um, but have been as committed to this neoliberal project as, of course, the Republicans. 
Well, the key of demagogic pro, uh, politics is to, uh, to realize that the people who are really backing you are the campaign funders. And your job as a politician is to look uh, to say, I can deliver this constituency. Uh, he was picked uh, uh, essentially by Robert Rubin, uh, who then became head of Citibank, uh, who came out of the Goldman Sachs. Uh, and he was picked by Rubin of Wall Street, to, uh, and his promise was he was going to uh, really uh, do what any president today is going to do. Your job is to deliver whoever voted for you to your backers who are on Wall Street. And whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, but especially if you're a Democrat, that's really the Wall Street uh, wing of uh, the American political system. And uh, the Republicans are the corporate monopoly, uh, oil and gas uh, uh, wing of it. And uh, that's really uh, the decision. There's the, a pretense that somehow if a politician talks against Wall Street and can vocalize people's resentment that somehow he must understand Well, them. that's Hillary Clinton's doing that in space. That's exactly it. Right. The, the key is if you're a criminal, uh, you have to plan to get caught. Uh, the plan is what do you, how do you beat the rap? And in Wall Street, if you buy garbage assets, how do you make the government bail you out? That was what the president of the United States is for. Whether it was Obama or whether it would have been John McCain Bush. or whether it would be Hillary today or Trump, their job is to bail out Wall Street. So essentially Wall Street, your campaign contributors have a veto over who you're going to appoint as Secretary of the Treasury. They want their Attorney guy. General. Yeah, Attorney General, to make sure that nobody uh, has to pay the price. And the Council of Economic Advisors, who are going to assure the people that Wall Street really is adding to the economy. And if you can only do what the Federal Reserve is doing, Janet Yellen, let's give the banks more money and we can borrow our way out of debt. If right. only we can have quantitative easing. So the Federal Reserve has given Wall Street four and a half trillion dollars. Now that four and a half trillion could have been used to write down the debt. Right. And then we wouldn't have a problem. Then everybody right. would have a lower living account. The four and a half trillion could have been spent into the economy. Well, we could have saved people from being foreclosed yes. and driven from their homes. But that wasn't what uh, Obama did. The idea of neoliberal economics is to create a parallel universe that seems plausible and seems that it would work uh, very nicely if the world were that way, but it doesn't have a relationship to the real world. So the function of neoliberal economics is to distract attention from how the economy really works, why it's polarizing, and why people are having to work harder and harder despite the fact that productivity is going up, and why the economy is polarizing between the 1% and the rest of the economy. And the 99, as they're yes. called. The, the, the amnesia that's gone on with the, or the selective amnesia that the neoliberals have peddled, just blocking out great swathes of economic history, is that deliberate? Or, and is that the cover story that you're talking about? It's a result of the lobbying process. Uh, the business interests who fund the major universities, the business schools, and the economics department want uh, an economic doctrine that celebrate them, not uh, criticize them. And certainly, uh, you, when you have the University of Chicago's monetarist, uh, that's very deliberately a special pleading, uh, a lobbying interest for the financial interests. and for the economy's financialization. Those of us who have looked to the self-interest of lending institutions to protect shareholders' equity, myself especially, are in a state of shocked disbelief. He shouldn't have been shocked, should he? 
he shouldn't have been shocked that this derailed so badly. I mean, he had to say he was shocked. He couldn't say, I knew it would happen, but what the hell, they paid me to do it. <laughs> and because that's the point, isn't it? In, in, in one of his, um, I think it's in his dissertation, he alludes to the fact that um, housing bubbles create this kind of social damage, but all that's been hushed up. He knew who paid him, and uh, all, when I was on Wall Street in the 1960s, banks were afraid to hire him because he was known for saying whatever the client wanted to be said. So he's a public relations person, and the fact is that's what economics is. Economics is taught in the universities as public relations for uh, the financial interests and for the corporate sector. Well, I mean, and insofar as intellectual capture, they've done a brilliant job. It's intellectual capture, but also excluding any intellectuals who won't be captured. If you don't follow the party line in economics, you're not going to get promoted at a university. In order to be hired in America, you have to publish articles in refereed journals. And uh, the, the right wing, uh, the monetarists, uh, the libertarians, and the neoliberals, have, uh, through, especially through the Chicago School, have taken over uh, the economic journals and will not let any alternative analysis or views be uh, pushed. And that's the genius of Chicago free market economics. It's the Pinochet principle, that you cannot have a Chicago-style free market unless you're willing to kill or uh, eliminate everybody who disagrees with you. Uh, a free market economics, Chicago style, must be totalitarian. There must be no alternative. There's been a pretense that the only legitimate economists are people with a tunnel vision who say it's okay to give Wall Street whatever it wants, you shouldn't regulate uh, prices, you should not throw the bankers in jail, you shouldn't even regulate consumer protection because that's added paperwork and it only adds to consumer prices. Uh, you really, if you get rid of government, everybody will be happy and uh, the 1% uh, trust us, we are the job creators. Uh, the purpose of economic education is not to explain how the world works, but to give a vocabulary that basically will confuse people into believing that the world has to be the way it is and that there is no alternative. So you have a, the vocabulary has been twisted around uh, into what really is junk economics. To the classical economists, a free market was a market free of landlords, free of predatory bankers, and free of monopolists. It was where uh, a market in which people were paid according to what they actually produced. But now, uh, over the last hundred years, in uh, the Chicago School, uh, libertarians say a free market is a market without any government interference. Uh, it's a market free for the rentiers. It's a market free for landlords to charge whatever they want. Free for banks to charge whatever they want and we're not going to throw a single banker in jail because that wouldn't be a free market. A uh, free market is free for the health insurance industry to uh, make uh, up to 13% of the whole GDP uh, charge whatever they want as monopolists. So uh, the whole meaning of the words has been reversed. We're living in Orwell Wells 1984 when it comes to economic terminology. In political discourse, every term has two meanings. You've got to start by recognizing that. So democracy has an official meaning, which is something like, you know, the ability of the public to take part in running their own affairs or something. But it also has a technical meaning, the one that's actually used. Uh, something is a democracy if it's run by the business classes. If, if business runs it, especially business elements that are supportive of U.S. interests, then it's a democracy. If not, it's not a democracy. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters virtually. 
uh, you'll check, you'll notice that this criterion works quite perfectly for identifying democracies. Uh, same is true of the term peace process. It has a dictionary meaning. In the dictionary meaning, a peace process is some kind of process that's trying to lead towards peace. But it also has a technical meaning. Uh, the technical meaning, in its technical meaning, it refers to whatever the United States happens to be advocating at a particular moment. Uh, uh, whatever diplomatic initiatives the United States is advocating, that's the peace process. Uh, notice it follows that it's a logical impossibility for the United States to be opposed to the peace process. That's a nice consequence. Uh, you, to prove that the United States is for peace, you don't have to do any laborious inquiry into the annoying facts, because it's true by definition. Since the peace process is whatever the United States is up to, the United States is always supporting peace. And the U.S. enemies are always opposed to peace uh, because they're not supporting what the U.S. is up to, and by definition that means uh, 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 they're opposed to peace. Uh, you'll never find in the U.S. media, or for that matter in U.S. scholarship for the most part, any such phrase as the United States is opposing the peace process or the United States is trying to block the peace process. You can't find such statements because they'd be logical contradictions. The economic vocabulary is uh, become Orwellian uh, and uh, the words that economists use have become the opposite of what they were really meant to be, like free market is the opposite of what Adam Smith meant for a free market. Uh, right down the line, uh, you have uh, junk economics is uh, basically the neoliberalism, the Chicago school. Uh, uh, it, it's a, a fictitious picture of uh, how a hypothetical universe might work if the 1% were really job creators, if they really ran the economy in order uh, for long-term growth instead of in the short term to make money for themselves and take the money and run. So and this depicts it because the yeah. parasite is now laboring, uh, the parasite is now so, so big, the host is laboring so badly under that. Well, the key of parasitism in nature is it's not simply that uh, the parasite takes uh, the lifeblood of the organism. In order to do that, the parasite has to take over the brain. And it takes over the brain of the host to make the brain think that the parasite is actually part of the host's body and even the baby. Uh, and so what you have today is uh, the economy imagines that the financial sector and the Donald Trumps of the world and the real estate speculators are part of the economy and part of GDP instead of being an overhead, a tumor. Uh, the classical economists said there were three kinds of unearned income. Land rent uh, of absentee owners uh, that you have to pay them just because they, their ancestors conquered the land and they established a rental claim. Uh, monopoly rent uh, by a monopolists and natural resource owners uh, of uh, charging a price that's much more than the cost of production. Uh, and finally, interest and financial charges. Uh, these are unnecessary. We have economies that have the same technology all over the world. So essentially, economic rent is, uh, was the word that the classical economists used for unearned income. And it's the excess of price over the actual cost value. How much do you, does a product, a pharmaceutical for instance, actually cost? And uh, if it costs uh, $2 to make a pharmaceutical pill and they sell it for $200, uh, that uh, difference of price over value. And is that called the economic rent? Yeah, that's called monopoly rent and that's a form of, that's one of the three forms of economic rent. Unearned income is income that really is paid to an unnecessary class or who uh, used to be called the idle rich in the 19th century.
So a rentier is uh, someone that is not technologically necessary for society. Uh, you, for instance, most societies have the same technology. Soviet Russia, the United States, China, Europe, they all had the same technology, but they all had a, uh, a different organization of real estate and banking, and hence rent and interest uh, and anti-monopoly rules. So uh, the least regulated economy became the most uh, parasite-ridden, where you had an overclass that didn't work, that didn't produce goods and services, but just charged for housing, charged uh, for money management, uh, charged for m uh, monopoly goods, and uh, that's what the economy is turning into. In, in a way, it's a neo-feudal economy.